Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. My name is Desmond Lochman, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to yet another Brexit event. Uh, I'm sure this isn't going to be the last of the Brexit events we host here. Uh, I'd especially like to welcome Ambassador Lamarinidis from uh, who's the European Union's ambassador to the United States, and Ambassador Mulhall, Ireland's ambassador to Washington. And I'm very much looking forward uh, to hearing uh, their perspective uh, from a European point of view on this Brexit issue. Uh, I'm also very much looking forward to hearing Amanda Sloat's latest perspective on Brexit, especially since she has been so insightful and helpful in allowing us to get a deeper understanding of the Brexit process in the previous AI Brexit events in which she has participated. Uh, As background to our discussion this morning, uh, I thought it might be worth mentioning a few of the more important uh, Brexit developments since our last event in October. Uh, The main development, of course, is that on December the 12th, Boris Johnson's Conservative Party uh, won a decisive victory in the general election on a get-Brexit-done platform. Uh, It did so in large measure because of the disarray in which the opposition found itself, and particularly the Labour Party. This makes it very likely that Boris Johnson will have a full five-year term in office. It has also made it possible for Mr. Johnson to finally get the Brexit withdrawal deal approved by Parliament, which means that the United Kingdom will certainly leave the European Union uh, in three days' time. It might be worth mentioning, though, that while Mr. Johnson did enjoy a decisive victory in that election, the country remained deeply divided on the Brexit issue. In particular, it bears highlighting that the Scottish National Party, which is very much in favour of Scotland remaining in Europe, won the overwhelming majority of parliamentary seats on offer in Scotland. This might cause Mr. Johnson problems down the road in avoiding a second Scottish independence referendum. Now, while it is true that the United Kingdom will have left the European Union by the end of this month, it still has to complete the very much more difficult task of negotiating a permanent economic relationship with the European Union. In terms of the withdrawal agreement, there'll now be a transitional phase through the end of 2020. During that period, the United Kingdom is supposed to negotiate a permanent economic relationship with its European partners, and until then, the existing UK-European economic relationship will stay in place. As Boris Johnson's government now enters this next phase of the negotiation, it is showing no signs of having softened its hardline Brexit approach. Indeed, it is insisting that it will not ask for an extension in the transition period beyond in 2020. Uh, 
It is also insisting that beyond 2020, the UK does not wish to be bound by European Union rules in whose formulation the UK will no longer have any say. This raises the possibility that the United Kingdom could still crash out of Europe without a deal by end year. It could do so unless it manages to negotiate a permanent economic arrangement with its European partners or unless it seeks and is granted an extension in the transitional period beyond in 2020. I'm very much looking forward to hearing what the panels make of all of this, both for the United Kingdom and for Europe. So without further ado, uh, I'll ask you to please join me in welcoming the panelists, and I'll turn it over to Stan Feuger, uh, my colleague at AI, who will be the moderator. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Desmond. Uh, I, I will indeed be moderating. Uh, what we're going to do today is first we'll listen to our uh, esteemed panelists' opening remarks and their views on the uh, Brexit situation as a whole. We'll then uh, have a conversation amongst ourselves before we uh, open it up to the audience. Um, and with that, mm-hmm. I think we... Uh, can get started with uh, Ambassador Lambini. Please tell us what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought that's why Amanda's here. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me start by thanking Desmond and, uh, and Stan, uh, not only for organizing this event today, but uh, numerous other such events in the past months whenever we thought Brexit would happen. Um, and, uh, and now it is. So uh, thank you for... Uh, for constantly bringing some wisdom to Washington about, about this process. And uh, let me also thank uh, my dear friend and colleague uh, Dan and, uh, and uh, Amanda as well um, uh, for, uh, for um, enlightening this debate all these, uh, all these months and years, frankly. Um, now, a couple of words on the, on the process. I think, uh, I think that um, Desmond said uh, a lot. The ratification of the agreement between the EU and the UK uh, is being completed. Um, it's not there yet. The signing happened last week from both sides. The European Parliament uh, is foreseen to approve the agreement uh, tomorrow, uh, which then will be ratified uh, by the UK and concluded by the EU, and it will enter into force on the 1st of, of February. So the question then is what happens next. First thing that happens is that the UK ceases to be a member of the European Union beginning on February 1st, 2020. Um, this is not as dramatic as it could have been had there not been uh, an approval of the withdrawal agreement um, by the UK Parliament, and we haven't reached the point that we are now. Uh, it will be um, a uh, smooth transition to the second phase, which is the uh, uh, transition period that is envisioned, which will last until the end of 2020 unless it is extended, and it can be extended for one or two years um, if there is a request for that, an agreement for that, by the 1st of July 2020. It's interesting to look at those, uh, at those dates because, indeed, they highlight the tightness of the schedule. The European Union uh, will adopt negotiating mandates um, uh, in order to engage in the discussions with the UK about the future relationship, uh, and those um, mandates will be expected to be adopted in February, by the end of February. Uh, and then, as you can see, there are basically about 10 months left to be able to have a comprehensive agreement on everything. And when I say everything, 
I mean everything. So trade is at the center of these discussions, but it, it is not the only part of the discussions of the future uh, relationship. Um, during the transition process, the UK will not remain um, uh, will not remain in the European institutions. Um, so it will not be part of the European <coughs> Parliament. It will not be part of the European Council, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but it will remain bound by European law until <coughs> the transition period is um, is uh, over. So indeed, this is a debate that is happening now in the UK. How long do we want to be bound? The answer is well so long as uh, you decide you wish to be bound to ensure that you have the deepest and most beneficial for, for UK citizens uh, agreement that, uh, that you decide that you want. The ambition uh, depends on, uh, on both sides, frankly, and, uh, and on our side we have stated that we are remarkably ambitious. So uh, when it comes to um, um, the relationship with the UK, it can never be as close as it was before. Um, by definition, uh, if you cannot have free movement of people, you cannot have free movement of um, uh, capital services and goods. These are the four pillars of the European Union. And I think, uh, but we hope uh, in every aspect of trade uh, to be able to eventually, if, if the UK has that ambition as well, to be able to reach a zero tariffs, zero quotas, zero dumping agreement with the UK. That means in practice, in practice, that... The UK, which is today at a level of full convergence with EU um, regulations and standards, um, would decide to stay at that full convergence. If it decides to diverge, however, then it would be pulling away from the European <coughs> legal um, uh, uh, framework. And, of course, uh, the more far away it pulls... Uh, the more difficult it will be to trade freely with the uh, biggest common market in the world. Why is this important, the common market for us? It's just difficult sometimes for people to understand. Well, because it is the economic crowning jewel of the European Union's integration in the past 70 years. Many people in this town think of the EU as a uh, bureaucratic, regulatory, big, faceless machine. It is the exact opposite. It is the biggest deregulation experiment in the world. We took the laws and regulations of 28 independent countries and we trashed them. And in their place, we put one common set <coughs> of laws and regulations that have allowed us to be able to move and to trade with each other, 28 countries, without a single impediment on any particular border. That is a remarkable deregulation achievement. But in order to get there, many sacrifices had to be made. So every one of our 28 member states had to change a remarkable amount of their own laws, of their own habits, of their own desires, to be able to ensure this harmonized field that allows also to American companies today to be able to set up shop in any corner of the EU that they want to and to be able to trade freely then with any one of the 500 million of the most prosperous consumers in the world, which is what the single market is. So single market, common market, it sounds like a, again, like bureaucratic speak. It's not. It's existential. It's fundamental. It is what makes Europe so indispensable for our own citizens 
for their prosperity and security, and also, frankly, for U.S. companies as well, uh, doing business around the world. Um, so in that sense, you understand why it is important for these negotiations to ensure that the common market uh, is uh, protected. And it's also, but again, it is entirely a decision of the U.K., how close or how far it wants to be. And let me just close by saying, this is going to be a very sad day, frankly, for all of us, uh, including um, me personally, uh, for reasons that are not important to expand. But I can assure you that virtually every one of our citizens in the European Union has personal reasons and interactions or political understandings or historical memories to understand the remarkable importance that it has for us, for our souls, forget our interests, um, that the UK has decided uh, to leave. But it is leaving, and as it is leaving, interestingly, the European Union is becoming more divided, more, more united, not less. The UK, it's a discussion to have. I mean, you mentioned issues. It's not for me to comment, Scotland, uh, etc. But if you look at the European Union and the, and the opinion polls in virtually every country, including countries you might hear here once in a while as being Eurosceptic or not liking the EU that much, etc., you will see that support for the EU in the past three years has skyrocketed. And you saw that as well in the last European elections uh, in uh, just last May. Um, so we have a lot of work ahead of, uh, ahead of us as Europeans. We have set the environment uh, and a green transition uh, as our, our new growth strategy. It's going to be a multi-trillion dollar exercise in the, past, uh, in the, next, in the next years that will um, transform us and transform the world in a remarkably positive economic way. And also, we hope, uh, uh, support and save uh, the planet, which is in real danger. <coughs> There we share interest with the UK. Security, it hasn't gone away. Terrorism hasn't gone away. It has hit the UK itself. It has hit uh, the, the uh, other countries of the EU. We will need to work together with the UK on those things. So I'm optimistic. I am sad that the UK is leaving, but I'm optimistic that we can big, build a relationship that will take care of UK citizens and EU citizens' interests uh, in, um, in an unprecedented way as far as bilateral <coughs> relations go between the EU and any other country. Uh, but again, the ambition um, is in the hands of the UK right now, and I hope that they make a decision very soon as to how close or how far away they wish to be from the EU. Thank you very much, um, uh, Ambassador Mohal. I understand the European Union is entirely unified, uh, <laughs> and so there's no space between what uh, Ambassador Lambert has just said and what you will say. Um, but can you tell us what your perspective is from Ireland as the, as the, mem as the remaining member state that is sure. probably the most affected by sure, yeah. No, that's – look, I, I echo um, what Stavros has said about the sadness that I feel. I mean, I've been in the Foreign Service now for 41 years. And uh, for all of those years, whenever I went to Brussels or Luxembourg or anywhere else for a European Union meeting, I was at the Irish desk. There was always a British uh, delegation – Usually, I would have talked to them, had a cup of coffee with them maybe before uh, the meeting and uh, maybe discussed the rugby or whatever, whatever, because we have a shared cultural space in many ways. We, we, you know, we, we speak the same language and we have very similar interests when it comes to sport and culture and so on. We have our own distinctive Irish culture, Irish sporting culture and musical so on, but we share a, a, another, an interest in, in, in many things that are, that are popular in Britain. So it, it, it is a, a bit of a wrench for, for people like myself to find that um, when I go now to our uh, heads of mission 
meetings. Uh, we, we, uh, we, because Britain is still a member of the EU, um, Stavros has kept the British flag and a seat for the British um, delegation, but they haven't been attending for the last uh, few months. And that, to my mind, look, I spent four years in London. Uh, I was ambassador in London during the whole Brexit uh, process and the aftermath of the referendum. I, my daughter lives in Scotland. She's married there to a Scot. Um, I have two, uh, three, sorry, recently three, was two, uh, uh, grandchildren born in Scotland who will probably live most of their lives in Scotland. Um, I have a son. My son lives in London. So I have very close connections, you know, with the UK. So um, I, I, I find it hard to see any good coming out of, uh, you know, the Brexit process. I mean, look at what it's done. It's, it's divided Britain. Uh, Desmond was quite right. Um, if you look at, if you count up the votes cast in favour of the Conservatives and the Brexit Party, and then you count up the votes um, cast in favour of the Labour Party, the Lib Dems, uh, the Greens and the Scottish National Party, it's about 52% for parties that were in favour of a second referendum and remaining in the European Union, and 48% in, in favour of those who want to leave. Now, Britain is leaving and the electoral system is such that... that uh, the Conservative Party has a, has a majority, has a mandate for leaving, and it will be leaving in the coming uh, days. Um, but it seems to me, at least, that um, this breach between the UK and the European Union is, is flying in the face of geographical realities. I mean, the, the theory is that the UK can somehow make up for the loss of trading opportunities with its nearest neighbour, neighbours, by having trading relations with countries that are much further distant from the United Kingdom. And that just doesn't make much sense. And I'll give you an example of why that is the case. Ireland has a population of 5 million. And we are the UK's fourth or fifth largest export market. When I was in Britain, at least, it's probably changed since then, but they... They exported more to Ireland than they did to China and India combined, right? So that tells you something about the power of geography. And the tragedy of Brexit is that these negotiations taking place may result not in an expansion of trade between the UK and the European Union, but a reduction of trade because it may not be possible to have quite the same free flow of trade and goods and services between the UK and the EU that we have today. And therefore, you, have, you would have an agreement that instead of having the normal aim of agreements, which is to expand trade through agreement on reducing tariffs and barriers, this may well end up having the opposite effect, which, of course, is a serious problem for Ireland because of all the European countries, we probably have the, the most intensive economic relationship with the UK. It's also, I keep mentioning to people here in the United States, it's bad for the United States because two of the United States' big trading partners are the European Union, the 27 countries that will remain after the UK leaves, and the UK. Now, you can argue the case about the economic impact of Brexit. And you can say, well, it will be It'll be, it'll be manageable. You know, there'll be a reduction in, in trade and economic activity. 
between the UK and the European Union, but it won't be catastrophic. Or there are others who argue that it actually could be very, very serious and could even be catastrophic if things, if, for example, Britain leaves without a free trade agreement and goes on to WTO arrangements at the end of this year. But either way, I, I, I've never, I never met anybody in Britain, sensible person, who argued that actually the economy would grow and there would be extra economic activity in Britain and the European Union because of Brexit. And if you therefore move across the Atlantic, if the economies of the, of the EU and the UK were to shrink, then clearly that would have a negative effect on the US economy. So I think that those who, who maybe have an enthusiasm uh, for Brexit on this side of the Atlantic ought to realise that economically it's not going to have any benefit for the United States, quite the opposite. And politically, it, undoubtedly, the British departure from the EU does weaken the European Union and therefore weakens the Atlantic uh, community that we're all uh, part of. We're not part of NATO, but we're definitely part of the Atlantic community. Um, and we have a very substantial trading relationship with the United States. And, and um, the best example, maybe, of the advantages available to U.S. companies in Europe is the presence of nearly 800 U.S. firms now in Ireland. And between them, they employ 170,000 people, about uh, 7% of our workforce. And they account for a very large percentage of our exports. And they're there, not because we Irish are wonderful people and they want to they um, live in Dublin, a lively city, and play our great golf courses and visit the Wild Atlantic Way. No, they could do that on holidays. They're there because it provides them with a platform a suitable piece of territory from which they can access the whole of the European Union of 500 million uh, consumers, as Stavros says, among the wealthiest consumers in the world. That's why we have American companies there. And we expect, by the way, that we'll have a lot more US companies coming to Ireland because from now on, if they make the assessment, where do I put my European operations if I need to have a European base, as many con companies will conclude they need to. Ireland will obviously become more attractive because we, we, we continue to provide access to the European single market and the UK perhaps will provide less access. So our concern over the last uh, three years has been twofold. The first has been to minimise the economic damage to Ireland of our exposure to the European Union and secondly to protect the peace process in Northern Ireland. Now, I would say that with the agreement reached in October and since ratified, well, ratified by the Westminster Parliament and ratified by the European Parliament probably in the coming days, um, that we've reached half-time. We've reached the kind of half-time um, point where, where, for us at least, we've avoided what we were worried about, which was a situation where you might end up having a border on the island of Ireland, which could, in certain circumstances, have triggered a return to violence. Now, by the way, that would have been unjustified and, and, and it would have been something that we would have totally been opposed to. We would have done everything we could to prevent it. But there was a risk there that was certainly not negligible and not one that we could dismiss. And happily, our European partners uh, stood foursquare with Ireland and we managed to reach an agreement with the British government, the EU and the British government, um, that will avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland in perpetuity. And that's a great relief for us. But the second bit 
of our concern is our, our, our trading relationship with the UK. Only about, about 13% of our exports go to the UK at the moment. But if you look at Irish-owned companies, particularly food companies um, and so on, about 40% of their exports, of everything they export goes to the UK. So in certain sectors of our economy, we're still heavily dependent on the UK market. Typically, Irish food producers produce large quantities of food for the, uh, for the large um, retail um, companies in Britain. And if, those, if that trade was to be disrupted because of having to resort to WTO rules, that would obviously be damaging for us. So we very much hope that we can reach that the EU and the UK can reach the kind of agreement that Stavros referred to, which would be an agreement that would uh, provide for continued free flow of trade, tariff-free, quota-free, between the EU and uh, the UK. But we also take the view that this can only be done on a level playing field. You know, you can't have a situation whereby Britain has access to the single market, all the advantages of membership of the EU, and yet refuses to abide by any of the rules and chooses to diverge from European rules um, as, it, as it sees fit. That won't work. Um, so it is going to be a tense negotiation. And by the way, it will have implications for Northern Ireland, incidentally, because the further Britain drifts away from the EU in terms of regulation and tariffs, the bigger the problem is for trade that goes between the UK, between Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, under the withdrawal agreement, there will have to be some arrangements yet to be worked out, put in place, to check that trade and to ensure that it doesn't undermine the single market. If there's free trade, tariff-free movement of goods uh, between Britain and the, and the EU, then that won't be a problem. But if there are barriers put in place, if we do have to diverge significantly we see a, a divergence between the UK and the European Union, then that, board, then that, that, that set of arrangements on the RSC will become more problematic because the checks that would have to be made would become more rigorous. The hope would be that, that those checks can be minimised in order to avoid any friction. And obviously, if you have checks on the RSC that are, that are more significant, then you potentially create political resistance on the part of the unionist parties who might see this as in some way separating... Um, the UK from Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. So, just as a final um, summary point, um, we're staying in the European Union because we have discovered over the past 45 years that EU membership is very good from an Irish point of view. We joined in 1973. Um, we were way behind the rest of the European Union in terms of our economic development. Today, we're a, we're a far more prosperous and successful outward-looking, and tolerant country, by the way. We've, we've changed our, many of our laws, which, which were very conservatively aligned, are now far more open and uh, progressive in their, um, or, or in their orientation. Um, this is backed by extraordinary figures. I mean, 93% of the Irish public favours EU membership. Something in the, in the 80s, Irish people say they're happy to be seen as, as, as European citizens as well as Irish citizens. So the support for EU membership has gone up because of Brexit, because people have seen the turmoil that trying to um, change or trying to leave the European Union has created in Britain and, and the complications it's created for Northern Ireland. And they, it, has, it has 
it has encouraged Irish people to double down on their commitment to European Union membership. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, before we turn to Amanda, shall we all turn off our uh, phone sounds and various things? Uh, I was hoping I wouldn't have to say that anymore. You know, <laughs> 20, 25 years in, you'd think people would, <laughs> would, would learn, but it turns out they do not. Um, Amanda, uh, uh, Ambassador Lombardinez just told us that you are here to tell us what's going to happen next. Uh, hey, over to you. I, well, I think I can safely predict that the UK is going to leave the EU on uh, Friday. Uh, Desmond and I were joking. This is the, the third one of these panels that I've done with Desmond, which, which I've appreciated. And we have talked before everyone and tried to game out the timing. And it's always been at a moment where we thought something was going to happen. And then we found ourselves on the panel and nothing actually happened. Uh, but I think you finally nailed the timing. Uh, and and we, are, we are here and, and the UK is going to leave um, uh, on Friday. Uh, that said, I think there will be scope for us to have plenty more of these events in the, the future, uh, because contrary to what Boris Johnson campaigned on, which was this idea of getting Brexit done, I would argue that we actually are only at the end of the beginning of Brexit. And in some ways, the wrangling that we have seen over the last couple of years has been the easy part. Uh, essentially, all that we have done is finalize the divorce arrangement. Uh, and as both of the ambassadors laid out, we now need to have conversations on what the future relationship is going to look like. Uh, Boris Johnson, I think, clearly hopes that, that he can turn domestic attention to focusing on domestic issues. He ran a campaign focused on services, transportation, uh, policing, education, very bread and butter things. Uh, on Friday, he is going to be taking his cabinet up to the north of England, uh, which historically flipped in the December elections from labor strongholds since the post-war period to supporting the conservatives again to start talking about some of these domestic issues. And there's a story going around that he has supposedly banned British officials from using the word Brexit uh, going forward. Uh, so in, in his mind, he is hoping to very much turn the page, Brexit is done, uh, we can now get on with the business of creating a global Britain and, and uh, creating this, this great post-Brexit future. Uh, I suspect that the reality of that is going to be much more complicated, uh, and I assume Desmond will, will bring us back at, at various points in the year to, to look at how that's going. Uh, as the ambassadors laid out, the, the top priority for the UK now is going to be sorting out its future relationship with the EU, but also starting to sort out its economic and its trading relations more generally. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about the UK planning to start EU and UK trade negotiations simultaneously. Uh, British Chancellor Javid said on a Davos panel last week that the UK is going to prioritize uh, its negotiations with the EU, which I think is, is quite sensible given the geography and the trading relations, and as Dan was saying, the need to identify how much divergence you have with the EU is going to affect what you are going to be doing with the U.S. and others. Uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin uh, seemed quite disappointed by this. Uh, he said that he had thought that the U.S. was going to go first. He thinks that the U.S. will be much easier to deal with uh, than the EU. I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, and, and repeated when, when he was in London that he thought that, that the U.S. could move forward very quickly with, with trade negotiations with, with the U.K. 
The reality for the UK is I think trade negotiations could be quite quick with both the US and the EU if they are willing to agree to what both sides want. <laughs> Uh, I think it's very clear on, on the EU side that uh, both sides are interested in, in having zero tariff, zero quota. Uh, but the EU has been very clear that that's going to require a lot of, of restrictions in terms of having a level playing field, and there's going to be some requirements in terms of regulatory alignment there. Uh, the British Chancellor has also created some confusion in the last couple of days uh, and made business quite nervous in terms of some of his comments about what this divergence is actually going to look like. In mid-January, he announced that uh, Brexit was not going to benefit all business, uh, that the UK was not going to align with the EU, and that business was going to have to adjust to new regulations. Uh, not surprisingly, this raised some questions and concerns among British businesses. And so in Davos, he was at great pains to clarify that the UK was only going to diverge when it was in business interest, and they were not going to diverge for the sake of, of simply doing so. Uh, so I think the rubber is going to meet the road when these negotiations actually start. Uh, to lay out what Ambassador Lamarditis was saying in terms of the timeline, these negotiations aren't even likely to start until March. Uh, the UK is going to leave on Friday. The UK then needs to set out its negotiating parameters, and the EU needs to set out its negotiating parameters. Neither of those things are expected to happen until around February 25th, which means we're going to start looking at negotiations around the beginning of March. Now, it's also true that this needs to be finalized by December, but the reality is you probably need to have this finalized by around October. Uh, and then there's also questions about what type of agreement you have. Uh, if you have an agreement that is quite narrowly scoped on things that are within the competence of the European Commission, then it only needs to be signed off there. If you have what's called a mixed agreement that includes things that are within the competence of the EU, as well as within the competence <coughs> of the member states, then all 27 of the remaining EU member states need to sign off on the deal. And in some cases, that requires their subnational parliaments to sign off on the deal. So this recently was a situation with the EU-Canada Free Trade Agreement, which, by the way, took seven years to negotiate, uh, so not six months. Uh, and one of the Belgian parliaments, I think it was in Wallonia, rejected the deal, and it had to be redone. So it's going to be very difficult to see if this degree or this, this agreement is comprehensive in scope, uh, how it is, is likely to, to get done. Uh, and certainly on the U.S. side, I think it's very clear what sort of concessions the Trump administration is likely to be looking for on things like agriculture standards, environmental standards, and pharmaceutical pricing. And all of these things are, are going to be very difficult for the Brits uh, to swallow, literally, uh, in, in some cases. Uh, and so I think that's also going to, to be a, a real challenge. Uh, one of the things talking about news that's, that's happened since our last panel is, is word was coming out this morning that Boris Johnson, uh, his cabinet has agreed to allow Huawei uh, to construct some of the 5G networks within the, the UK. And it's going to be very interesting to see what the reaction of the US government is to this. Uh, Secretary of State Pompeo is expected to be in, in London tomorrow. And Boris Johnson now is going to face this new reality outside the European Union of having to make a set of economic decisions as well as a set of foreign policy decisions. And there's going to be real questions about alignment, not only how he aligns himself in terms of regulations with the EU, but where he aligns himself on, on some of these foreign policy things. 
if you look at a broad range of issues, I think the UK currently is philosophically closer to the EU than it is to the Trump administration on a number of things. Certainly on Iran and the JCPOA, uh, Boris Johnson has come out with his E3 partners, the French and the Germans, in statements about wanting to continue supporting the JCPOA. Uh, there's support for the, the Paris Climate Agreement, and I think support in the UK for the EU objectives on, on focusing on, on environmental issues. Uh, there's continued concern about uh, the, the digital tax, which the UK has supported, what the EU has been doing on that and wanting to move forward with the digital tax. And the UK uh, clearly is subject to the same threat of auto tariffs that the rest of the EU is if that goes forward. Uh, and we now have the case of, of China, where a lot of the EU, and I think some member states are probably hiding behind this idea of wanting to have an EU consensus on this. Uh, and even though the UK is outside of that, I think countries like Germany, certainly also countries like Canada and Brazil, are going to watch what's, what's happening there. And so for Johnson, it's going to be a real question between where he aligns the country on some of these, these foreign policies, and also, of course, wanting to stay on Donald Trump's good side while these trade negotiations are, are going to go on. So I, I think the, the next year is, is going to be fascinating to, to watch on, on both of those. Uh, so let me just also say a, a brief word about Northern Ireland and, and Scotland, uh, which are both places that I, I spent a, a great deal of time and, and, and still feel a great degree of, of affection for. Uh, on Northern Ireland, another news development uh, that we haven't mentioned that has, has come out since uh, last fall is that the Northern Ireland Assembly has been stood up again. Uh, the Assembly had been suspended for over three years and I think really risked becoming one of the great casualties of Brexit. Uh, the reasons that it collapsed, the reasons that it was staying suspended had to do with domestic politics, a, a breakdown of trust between parties there. But certainly a lot of the questions and the tensions raised by Brexit uh, were, were fueling debates there and making it very difficult to get the assembly stood up. Uh, and full credit goes to the, the British and the Irish governments for a lot of on-the-ground diplomacy over the last couple of months to, to get to a place where that was stood back up. Uh, certainly, I think the, the threat of holding new elections if the assembly was not stood up was a motivating factor for the two largest parties, uh, neither of whom did as well as they had in the past in, in the December elections in, in the UK. Uh, so that, I think, is, is a positive. Uh, but wanted to underscore what, what Dan referred to, which is going to be one of the big tensions in the UK's trade discussions with the European Union, which is this question of, of divergence. And you're already seeing a lot of messaging within the last week suggesting that the British government and the EU are taking slightly different perspectives on this. Uh, a DUP MP uh, from, from Northern Ireland's Hardline Unionist Party had put the question to, to Boris Johnson during Prime Minister's question times about this idea of unfettered access because Boris Johnson had been making the case uh, that uh, Northern Ireland firms were going to continue to have unfettered access to the, the Great Britain market. And so the MP was asking whether or not this was going to, to, to operate the same uh, uh, going in, in reverse. And, and Boris Johnson said emphatically that was going to remain the case. Uh, the advisor to Michel Barnier, the EU's Brexit negotiator, was in London that night and, and pushed back quite strongly on that. And Michel Barnier, the, the Brexit negotiator uh, in the past and also going forward on these trade talks, spoke in Belfast yesterday and continued to, to push back on this point and underscored the fact that the EU is going to be very strict on the way that checks um, are, are going to be uh, put into place. So 
I realize that was all super wonky. Essentially, what, what the, the MP was, was wanting to argue is that there's going to be essentially minimal or ideally no checks on, on goods that are moving from Great Britain, so the, the England, Scotland, Wales landmass, uh, over to, to Northern Ireland with checks in, in the Irish Sea. And Boris Johnson has continued to suggest that there are not going to be checks. Uh, the EU, uh, which is the ambassador was laying out, takes very seriously the sanctity of the single market and wants to protect that, is going to be very insistent that there are checks, especially if those goods move from Britain into Northern Ireland and are likely to head into Ireland, which is, of course, still part of the EU single market, and then on into the rest of the EU. So that's going to be a, a big issue in terms of, of trade negotiations, and it's also going to have serious implications on the ground in Northern Ireland politically. Uh, finally, a word on, on Scotland. Uh, Desmond was right that the SNP did very well in the December elections. They won 48 out of 59 seats, so they're going to remain a very vocal presence within the British Parliament, uh, and they are also going to continue to make the case for a second independence referendum. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's first minister, put forward a request formally to Boris Johnson earlier this year asking for a second independence referendum. Uh, in the middle of January, Boris Johnson uh, rebuffed that and said he was not going to support it. Uh, but this week, in addition to what's happening with Brexit, it'll be worth watching some of the headlines coming out of Edinburgh because this, this issue is coming to the fore. Uh, so tomorrow, the Scottish Parliament is going to ask its members to vote on a motion, uh, essentially in support of having a, a further Scottish independence referendum. Uh, the motion is going to suggest that the Scottish people should have the right to determine their own form of government. Uh, it's going to make the case that the circumstances have qualitatively changed since 2014, when the last election took place, and it is going to call for the British government to work with them on holding a referendum in the, the coming year. Uh, and then on Friday, on Brexit Day, Nicola Sturgeon is going to be making a speech setting out the way forward uh, as the Scottish government sees it in terms of, of handling this question. Uh, final, also very wonky point, uh, there's this provision known as the Sewell Convention. Uh, it's a convention which is not legally binding, uh, but is a convention that has generally been adhered to, which said that the Westminster Parliament does not go forward with legislation unless the devolved administrations are affected by the legislation and have given their consent to it. It's worth noting that the Northern Ireland Assembly, the Welsh Assembly, and the Scottish Parliament all voted against the withdrawal agreement uh, governing the UK's departure from the, the uh, European Union. When the Brexit legislation went to the House of Lords to be ratified, the House of Lords raised this. They also made four other amendments to the legislation. Similar to the US system, you need both chambers to agree on the final uh, text of the bill. The bill went back to the Commons. The Commons stripped out all five of the Lords' amendments, and at that point, the, the Lords acquiesced and, and the bill went through. Uh, but it is worth noting that there is going to be a serious constitutional question going forward for the UK, and it's not a very healthy dynamic going into Brexit when three of your four constituent parts are unhappy for various reasons with the mechanisms under which that is happening. Very good. Um, the, I th yeah, I think uh, Ambassador Mohal also pointed out that there will be checks of some kind. Right? The, 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 the scenario of no checks seems, seems difficult. That there at least yeah. will be arrangements to check, I think, is the phrase used. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the withdrawal agreement does say that, that they will be as, as light as they can be consistent with protecting the European single market. But obviously, the more the divergence there is between the UK and the EU, the more emphasis there will be on, on the need for those checks to be fairly rigorous. Yeah. That's right. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the economics. And, you know, the main point I'm wanting to make, I'll be repeating points made by previous speakers, is that 
Brexit has not been kind to the UK economy to date, and it's unlikely to be kind to the UK economy, it's certainly in the next year or two. And the way in which I want to structure my remarks is firstly just looking at what Brexit might have done to the UK economy the last three and a half years, you know, since the United Kingdom had the Brexit referendum in June 2016. I then want to just talk a bit about the mistakes that I think that the UK made in the Brexit negotiating process. I then want to talk about the mistakes that I think the UK are making in the next phase of the process. And finally, I just want to talk about the likely uh, outcomes. So just to begin with uh, the um, what it's done to the UK economy the last uh, uh, couple of years, the last three years, is that prior to Brexit, the UK was the best-performing economy amongst the G7 countries. Uh, since Brexit, it's moved down to being the worst uh, or certainly uh, close to the worst of the G7 performing countries. Prior to 2016, the UK looked like it kept gaining on Europe, but now we see that uh, there's been a reversal in that position. Where we would have expected the UK to be uh, in relation to G7 growth, we see that it's been below that line. What is particularly of concern to me is what investment has been doing in the United Kingdom. The European countries uh, have seen something like a 10% increase in investment. United Kingdom investment has been basically flat. That is not very good for long-term growth. If people aren't investing because they're afraid that you don't have, you might have disruptions to supply chains or there's uncertainty or whatever reason, if you don't get the investment, and on top of that, if Brexit means you're going to get less immigrants coming to uh, Europe, so you don't have the investment, you don't have the workers, well, you should certainly expect to have the UK on a very much slower long-term growth path. Uh, Let me turn to the problems I see as the UK having had in the negotiations. They made a series of mistakes. You know, the first mistake was to trigger Article 50 of the treaty in March 2017 without having political agreement amongst themselves as to what they were trying to seek in those negotiations. So while the UK was uncertain, the Europeans were very clear in what their objectives were, and they were surprisingly unified. The 27 countries were surprisingly unified in uh, that uh, uh, negotiation. Uh, matters got complicated later on. You know, when Theresa May left uh, uh, the scene uh, in uh, something like June 2019, when Boris Johnson comes in, uh, Boris Johnson then makes the statement that he'd rather die in a ditch than seek the extension uh, of the um, uh, the deadline, you know, beyond October the 30th. And what that did is it really put the UK in a very weak position. Uh, the Europeans were happy to run down the clock, extract uh, 
concessions from the UK as they saw the abyss. Everybody knew that if the United Kingdom crashed out of Europe, uh, that was really going to be a disastrous for Europe, but it was going to be certainly terribly disastrous for the United Kingdom. So what occurred in the end is Boris Johnson was forced by Parliament to seek the extension, but not before he had to make very uh, big concessions uh, to the uh, uh, Europeans on the Irish issue. You know, having formally said that no respectable British Prime Minister would treat Northern Ireland in a different way from the rest of the United Kingdom, that's where he found himself landing up. So the UK got uh, the uh, short end of the stick. Uh, we had sterling uh, swooning towards the end of the year. You know, markets were really very concerned about uh, Brexit when that looked like a possibility of the UK crashing out. So uh, that wasn't really uh, very well handled, uh, the negotiation. Let's fast forward to the negotiations now. You know, we've got a year to uh, go, you know, as... Uh, People are pointing out, uh, you know, I just wondered whether they've in fact got uh, six months, you know, whether it's not in fact the July that is really the time at which decisions are going to have to be made, whether or not to get the extension. Once again, you know, what we're having is uh, uh, the UK making the mistake of saying uh, categorically, uh, you know, that there's going to be no request for a uh, uh, an extension. You know, this is a totally unrealistic uh, bargaining position. You know, this is, as Amanda's pointed out, this is a very complex negotiation. You know, it took Canada seven years to negotiate. You know, it's important not as to where the United Kingdom starts the negotiation, you know, that they start with regulatory alignment, but if they decide to want divergence, uh, then it makes the negotiation uh, very complex that to think that you can do this in uh, five or six months uh, is uh, being uh, very uh, unrealistic. Uh, another big mistake, uh, you know, Ambassador uh, Namrindin made this point, uh, is that the UK is, or should I say uh, Ambassador Malhal made the point that the UK is um, forgetting that its trade with Europe is something like 50% of the uh, overall trade that it has, whereas with the United States, it's only 20%. So what they're doing is they're jeopardizing a trade relationship where it's half of their trade for pie in the sky that maybe at some distant date in the future, they're going to get a very favorable trade deal from the United States that only affects uh, 20% uh, of their trade. 50% of their trade is with uh, the uh, Europeans. Uh, very much less amount is with uh, North uh, America. Uh, uh, the other point, the other big mistake that the UK is making is that they're talking about only wanting an agreement on goods. You know, they don't want to have an agreement on the export of services. You know, they're just forgetting uh, the... Uh, uh, slight problem that services now are something like 45% of UK exports. You know, the city of London represents something like 7% of the UK economy, and most of those services go to the European Union. You know, so 
how they're expecting to be uh, treated, you know, having different rules and not being aligned, uh, you know, that uh, escapes me. So, in short, you know, I think this next phase of the negotiation uh, is going to be difficult. We're still going to have the uncertainty. There's still going to be uncertainty as to whether, in fact, the United Kingdom crashes out. So, I don't see uh, investment being uh, very uh, good in the UK. Uh, so, you'd expect to see the UK is currently on the cusp of a recession. Uh, I don't see that this is going to help them uh, get their economy uh, moving. The point that I'd want to emphasize is the excessive optimism that the United Kingdom has. You know, they think that they've got a special relationship with the United States, therefore they're going to get a free trade agreement you know, in a matter of months. Uh, they're just forgetting a uh, few minor points, you know, that generally free trade agreements take a number of years to negotiate. They're forgetting that Congress might have a say in uh, whether or not to give the free trade agreement. They're forgetting the fact that there's an agricultural lobby, there's a pharmaceutical lobby, you know, that Amanda's uh, referred to. Uh, they might have to get used to eating chlorinated chicken. They might have problems with GMOs and the rest. So I don't see uh, this as being a very quick negotiation. You know, and the point I'd make is uh, it just strikes me as being pure folly uh, to jeopardize uh, a trade relationship where you're sending 50% of your exports uh, for something that's very uncertain uh, on uh, the remaining uh, 20% that you might have from the United States. So I don't see uh, the United Kingdom uh, becoming the Singapore on the Thames anytime uh, soon. Lastly, let me just uh, mention uh, a couple of uh, different scenarios, you know, that uh, I, I think one would have to be a foolhardy to uh, uh, try to predict, you know, where in fact this is going to uh, end up. But there are a variety of possibilities. The one uh, you know, that if the UK, you know, continues to insist that they want divergence, you know, possibly they get a very stripped-down uh, deal with uh, Europe, but then they're not going to really have proper access uh, to uh, the single market. The other point, you know, that uh, maybe that uh, on an optimistic note, uh, that um, Boris Johnson last year said that he wouldn't die, that he'd rather die in a ditch than ask for an extension. He managed to ask for an extension. So, you know, maybe when we get to July, he manages to do a U-turn. Uh, yes. The signals don't really look good, but I think that that would be the most sensible thing, you know, to occur is for him to give a more reasonable period of time to get uh, a, uh, a decent deal. Uh, the uh, worst-case scenario is that uh, uh, the UK crashes out of Europe uh, without a deal at the end of December, and that would really be uh, a really very uh, a bad case. So these are not my estimates. These are government official estimates. In the U if the UK uh, leaves without a deal you know, over the next decade or so, uh, that would cost them something like... 9, 10% of GDP. You know, so the loss of GDP in the case of their crashing out is pretty uh, great, you know, particularly if uh, uh, you, know, you couple it with uh, their restrictions on, um, on immigration. Uh, and the other scenarios are less so, you know, that if they get a, 
uh, an easier kind of Norway kind of deal, the losses uh, would be uh, very much uh, less. You know, so I'll conclude, uh, just remind everybody that this isn't going to be uh, the last Brexit uh, seminar that, you know, as Amanda said, uh, you know, and as uh, Churchill, who's one of Boris Johnson's uh, heroes, might have said, you know, we're uh, not at the um, uh, beginning of the end, you know, we're only ready at the end of the beginning uh, and I would just add to all of that that uh, uh, Boris Johnson will have nothing to offer Britain over the next year uh, other than uh, economic blood, sweat and tears. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week. Thank you.